Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Keep Left, the program of the Victorian Labor College. In the studio is Irene Bolger. Good morning, everybody. And myself, Chris Gaffney. Well, as you probably realise, this is the centenary year of the Russian Revolution. And, uh, well, I will be doing a number of features concerning that, trying to fill you on the actual history, because let me tell you, you will hear mountains of rubbish about it, because the idea that the working class could revolt against their conditions is, of course, completely alien to the bourgeois press and, indeed, to uh, most conservative politicians. Um, so you might remember that there was a 1905 revolution which was not successful and uh, after the 1905 revolution there was an extended period of working class revolutionary upheaval around the world. Now the Russian revolution occurred in a very backward country. It had barely emerged from serfdom. They only abolished uh, peasant, uh, serfdom in 1863. That is where you're a peasant wielded to the uh, welded to the the, the feudal landlord, uh, where in, in the initial industrial capitalist development was not preceded by a bourgeois revolution like in 1789, where capitalism replaced feudalism, um, nor was there centuries of gradual capitalist development. Marx had always argued that what made socialism possible, that is, workers' control of production in the state, full political democracy, full equality, was the development of the productive forces to a, to a sufficient degree to provide plenty for everybody. Uh, without this, says Marx, any attempt in those sort of poverty conditions must fail. Because, to quote Max, Marx, without it, only want is made general, and with want, the struggle for necessity and all the old crap will necessarily be reproduced. So Russia was an extremely backward, essentially feudal country, so two questions. Why did revolution break out in Russia and why was it a working class revolution? Russia was a backward country and yet at the same time it was part of the world economy, only one part of the capitalist world system. Lenin used the formula, the chain broke at its weakest link. Now the First World War threw everybody, all the various countries, which were at various stages of development, but demanded, as wars do, the same level of participation. There aren't special rules for weak countries. The more backward the country, the greater the burden of the war on that country's economy. <coughs> as you know, Russia was the first to leave the military field, but for that to happen, a severe dislocation of the Russian class struggle, class structure had to occur. Apart from the war, the more advanced the general forces of production, the tenser the competition on the world marker, the sharper the antagonisms, the madder the armaments race, the harder it becomes for the weaker participants. This is why backward countries were always the first to collapse. Now, it wasn't the war alone that was responsible for the revolution, because even in times of peace, Russian society would have fallen victim to the same contradictions that exploded a hundred years ago. Well, this explains why the Tsar suffered shipwreck but not why a socialist revolution should, should succeed in a backward country. The breakdown of old feudal Russia should, one would normally have expected, have led to a bourgeois revolution, as in 1789, as feudalism gave way to capitalism, rather than to a socialist state dominated by the working class. In fact, one faction of the Russian revolutionary movement, the Mensheviks, 
argued that capitalism inevitably follows feudalism, so the bourgeoisie, or the capitalists, must be the new ruling class after the fall of the Tsarist aristocracy. So they argued that the task of the revolutionaries and socialists was to encourage the capitalists to seize power. And this led the Mensheviks to support the bourgeoisie, the capitalists, even in opposition to the working class. There was a second view held by Lenin and the Bolsheviks until April 1917, and that was, well, the next stage would have to be bourgeois, but that the workers and peasants would have to do the job for them. That is, a worker-peasants dictatorship would establish capitalism and complete the bourgeois democratic revolution, that is, uh, parliamentary democracy, etc., thus creating conditions for the workers' revolution at a later date. Trotsky alone held that the revolution would have to be led by the working class in alliance with the peasants and that it would have to proceed to the creation of a workers' state. He was a lone voice in this. Lenin agreed with him in April 1917. Different stages of civilization in a world economy overlap and intermingle with each other in the life of the one and the same country. In other words, there's a, an influencing of backward and progressive countries. Uh, this produces a development within Russia that was combined and unevil, uneven. At the beginning of the 20th century, industry occupied a very small place in Russia compared with agriculture. Peasants were 70% of the population. The working class was only 20 to 25%. Productivity was extremely low. In 1914, Russia's productivity rate was 8 to 10 times lower than that of the United States. So, almost without a single highway, Russia began to build railways in the 1870s. Without having gone through the artisan stage or the manufacturing stage of development, as happened slowly over centuries in England and in France, Russia went straight to mechanised production. To leap over intermediate stages is the way of backward countries. In other words, they don't go through the whole palaver we did over centuries. They will go to the latest technology. So while peasant agriculture often remained at the level of the 17th century, Russian industry, at least in its type, reached the technical level of the most advanced countries. For example, gigantic enterprises with more than 100 workers each employed in the United States less than 18% of the industrial workers, whereas in Russia it was more like 41%. This is not to suggest that Russia wasn't <coughs> backward, but it shows the dialectical components that could produce, a, and the mixture, the combined and uneven development that could produce a socialist revolution in Russia. This same contradictory character was seen in the class struggle. <clears throat> Faced with keeping pace with the West, the Tsarist regime encouraged foreign investment and the finance capital rushed into uh, Russia to industrialise the economy from the 1880s on. The Russian capitalist class depended on the Russian state for its survival and on foreign capital, including particularly British and French. It was too, its native capitalist class was too weak to initiate a struggle against the Tsar. Such industry as existed assumed a large-scale and anti-popular character. The owners, the foreign stockholders, well, they lived outside the country. But the workers, they were Russian. So against a numerically weak Russian capitalist class with no national roots, 
there stood confronting it a relatively strong and concentrated working class with strong roots amongst the people and a high level of class consciousness. The workers hadn't had years of parliamentary rule and Labour parties to spread social and political conservatism. Nevertheless, the young and energetic working class still was a minority of the nation, about 25%. The peasants were 70% of the people. The reserves of the revolution were in the peasantry. In other words, you couldn't make a revolution in Russia without the support of the peasants. This was the subsoil of the revolution, for the old feudal regime became doubly intolerable under conditions of the new capitalist exploitation. The peasant communal areas, for example, had mounted to 196 million acres, yet 30,000 landowners, average of 2,800 acres each, owned a total of 9.8 million acres. That is, 30,000 landowners owned as much as 10 million peasants. But the peasants, a peasant revolt, is what we see at the beginning of a, of a bourgeois revolution, like in 1789, and not of a workers' revolution. The, why? Well, because the peasants, not a class that opposes private ownership, they want it, but they want it against the large landowners. So the, peasants, the peasant revolts, particularly after August 1917, didn't drive the capitalist class in Russia forward, but backwards into the hands of the Tsar, because they were more frightened of the working class. The peasants, backward and ignorant, isolated from the centres of power, turned to the workers. Now, had the native bourgeoisie in Russia been able to come up to the job, the workers wouldn't have been able to achieve power in 1917, but they weren't. They were a Johnny-come-lately class. They dared not lift a hand against feudal property, so that the ability to change society became the the, uh, the priority of the workers. For example, organs of mass democracy, the Soviets or workers' councils is what that actually means, it was necessary for two historical factors to come into existence and work together. That is a peasant war, a movement that we see at the beginning of capitalism, and a revolt of the working class whose development announces the decline of capitalism. These were the sources of the combined character of the Russian Revolution. The peasants, although in revolt, were unable because of their social situation to give conscious expression to their indignation. They needed leadership and they found it in the working class parties. The second great reserve of the workers was the oppressed nationalities, which are largely peasants. Um, to the great Russians were added 90 million people of other races. The ruling nationality in Russia was only 43% of the population, whereas the 57% who made up the various nationalities had various levels of legal and economic deprivation. The, uh, after February, of course, a, we had a bourgeois government of Kerensky. It reflected the interests of the Russian bourgeoisie, and it hastened to impress on the nationality that you will only get what you want by force. The Bolsheviks played self-determination for the oppressed nationalities and won their support although these rights were later violated by Stalin. The oppressed nationality, like the Russian peasants, turned against the official democrats, that is the bourgeois, liberal and social democrats, strengthened the working class and poured into the stream of the October upheaval. Prior to the 20th century, there were a variety of approaches amongst revolutionaries as the need to destroy the Tsarist regime. The populists, who later split into two wings, believed that Russia wouldn't go through a capitalist stage, 
but that socialism could be reached through an organisation of the peasants. Well, Lenin in his book Development of Capitalism in Russia in 1897 proved beyond doubt that Russia would pass through a capitalist stage and would not be different to Europe. So, said Lenin, if you dismiss the industrial growth of the 1890s and 80s and 90s would be a big mistake. At the beginning of the 20th century, the Social Democratic Party of Russia, no connection with Labour parties, etc., was founded, and at its second Congress in 1903, a split took place. The split took place on the basis of who could become a member of the party. Lenin said that only those devoting their lives to the revolutionary movement should be members. Equally eminent Marxists on the other side said that membership should be open all who believe expressed belief in the Labour movement, a bit like the Labour Party. When the vote was taken, Lenin had the majority and the, the party split. Bolshevik means majority by the by. We should note that Lenin's concept of the party was quite different from the monolithic, bureaucratic instrument of control that developed later under the Stalinist bureaucracy. Self-criticism, internal democracy were a vital part of the party. When the party divided on the question of the actual seizure of power in October 1917, the men who opposed the insurrection, like Kamenev and Zinoviev, were not only not expelled or shot, as they would have been under Stalin, they were elected to the Central Committee of the Party. Even Lenin, on several occasions, found himself in a minority because internal dissent was tolerated, factions were allowed. The operating basis of Lenin's party was democratic centralism, which combined the fullest internal freedom to discuss with complete unity of action. Party life was based on it being part of the working class, organised separately, but having no interest outside the needs of the class and the class struggle. In 1904, Russia declared war on Japan, and 12 months later, Russia was forced to sign peace terms as a beaten power. This revealed all the rottenness of the feudal aristocracy, and we might add caused huge panic in Australia, because an Asian power defeated a European power. Before the war's end, the country bordered on revolution. The bourgeoisie were putting demands for a limited monarchy in a legislative assembly. Soviets or workers' councils not set up by the Bolsheviks, they were set up spontaneously by the workers. The Marxists worked through the Soviets for support of the workers against the demands of the bourgeoisie. The Social Democrats hoped that the Soviets would carry the revolution through its finality and so pave the way for the victory of the workers. The social revolutionaries representing the peasants refused to recognise the necessity for a bourgeois society and they resorted to revolutionary terrorism. In 1905, the forces against Tsarism were not strong enough to depose it. The Tsarist governments limped on until the First World War. Lenin said this, For a revolution to take place, it's not enough that the lower orders do not wish to live in the old way. It is also necessary that the upper classes should be unable to live in the old way. Now, I'll leave it there because I'm running out of time. I'll return to this subject next week and we'll deal with the period from 1905 to the successful uh, October Revolution. And uh, so I hope you get something out of that. Now, Irene, oh, Jill, shall we have a... Um, do you want a song? I can't even Yes, find. and while, while you're looking for something, um, I've got a little note, and this is to the... Pr- 
previous program, actually. Mm-hmm. Lars wants to know if I could briefly outline a diversion program because we were talking about <coughs> the people being put on a diversion program for pulling down Green's posters. Oh, oh, those... A diversion uh, program. ALP scumbags. Yes. Um, the, a diversion program is uh, where you're not registered as having a... Um, a conviction, or you're not registered as having uh, anything yeah, no. uh, against you, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, what you're asked to do usually is to write a letter of apology. Um, you may have to pay a fine more often than not, or and also donate some money to. Some, you escape something. conviction. You do escape conviction. Right, right. Well, it's not even on a. It's not on the record at all. Right, so right. it becomes it's diverged, diverts you away from the court. So you don't have a record. Right, yes. Um, I got one of those. Oh. <laughs> so so uh, the thing is that then it's – so it's not a, a – you just have to admit that you did it, um, but they don't proceed with the charges against right. you. Uh, so there's no hearing and uh, you just end up with a smack. Okay, I'm going to talk about uh, Marxism and feminism. And uh, I must say it's going to take more than one week for me to discuss all the of elements of this because it's uh, it's quite a vast sort of subject, particularly when you, you uh, uh, start to look at the different facets of feminism because not all feminists uh, have the same um, thoughts about... Uh, Marxism and uh, and the working classes and what happens with women. So, uh, but today I'll probably do a bit more of a general general talk about um, uh, the difficulties that uh, some feminism feminists, or probably a lot, most feminists, have with Marxism. In that it it's not inclusive uh, generally of women within the uh, context of of uh, what it talks about. Uh, I just want to start off by um, going through some points made by a person by the name of Sam Cooke, which just sets out in very brief form um, Marxist feminist and radical feminist perspectives. Uh, And and this is general, where uh, she defines Marxist feminists that they believe that the emasculation of women comes originally from capitalism. Radical feminists, on the other hand, believe that it is patriarchy itself that emasculates women. <clears throat> the, uh, and she, she goes on to say, the social reproduction of labour power, the fa- family provides a place where children can be born and, tra- and raided, um, raised with security. This then provides capitalism with a good future workforce. It does this in three ways. Women and the family provides a relaxing place, ensuring members of the workforce go to work with their ability renewed. Doing work for the family, such as housework and looking after family which is unpaid, helping capitalism for no cost. By socialising children into the dominant ideology and making them good workers, for example, socialising children into believing the mother should be a housewife and the father should be a breadwinner. So that's one one aspect of it. Social control of the working class. The family keeps the working class people conforming to the dominant norms and values, helping capitalism. For example, a family is expected by norms and values to provide for the children. But to do this, the parents must stay in work, even if it is tedious, low-paid and boring. Feminists disagree that there is a growing equality between partners. They argue that there is still inequality because it is mainly women who perform housework, 
and that is even today, I might say, mm-hmm. uh, women perform most of the, of the housework. Um, I do, mainly because I chose not to get married, but uh, <laughs> I Smart wouldn't be doing woman. it. Smart woman. Smart <laughs> woman. I only do it for myself. I'm not waiting on anybody else. Uh, make sacrifices to provide for children. Make less decisions. Be dependent on men's earnings. Give up paid work to look after children, sacrificing work opportunities. And so, and a lot of women, many women, work part-time for those reasons and are more likely to be victims of domestic violence by men. <clears throat> Criticisms of the Marxist feminist and radical feminist perspective. Uh, and this is, this is uh, just generally that women's roles aren't the same in all families. Some are becoming more symmetrical, and that's true uh, today, but it seemed to be taking an awful long time. <laughs> uh, this, this was written back in 2011, but uh, uh, I can't see in my lifetime that there's going to be a, a proper sharing of these roles. Some women choose to fulfil what feminists see as an emasculating role in the family. Feminists don't account for this. Around 70% of divorces are filed by women. This shows that actually women have more power to escape a relationship than feminists say. So that's, that's a counter-argument. Um, it's, it, I must say in Australia, since we had changes to the law uh, in the Whitlam government, in, in uh, family law, it has made it uh, easier, of course, for women to, uh, to gain divorces than it used to be. Uh, <coughs> now... Uh, I want to look at um, feminist questions about Marxist theory, and uh, and I'm I'm been re- looking at an article written by um, IS, uh, and this is way back uh, in uh, 1982, but it's it's still relevant today, I might say, unfortunately, and it looks at um, the theoretical questions concerning women's oppression, uh, which have to be addressed. Uh, what is the nature and role of the contradictions between men and women? Should the contradiction between the sexes be placed on an equal footing with the class contradiction? What is genuine, genuine revolutionary strategy for women's re, uh, liberation? And I think we've got a bit lost in that uh, with our feminism today. I think we're all over the place in terms of women's liberation and what's liberating and what's not. In examining a classical Marxist literature, we've been struck by the quasi-absence of an analysis of the situation of women in our society, as in previous societies. In fact, we can clearly state that if the program of IS contains serious weaknesses, omissions and errors on the question of women, this is because our program is a faithful carbon copy of the classical Marxist line on the question, and that Marxist theory contains the same weaknesses, omissions and errors. (coughs) The uh, women's movement within IES do not have as yet definitive positions on all the questions which we raised in this article. We are indebted to the many feminists, both radical and socialist, whose works have helped us to identify the problems in Marxism. We endorse their criticisms in general without yet being able to indicate if we feel that nature and depth of the criticism put into question the possibility that the Marxist method of analysis be used to resolve the problems and errors of Marxist theory on the question of women. In other words, 
Although you might say that we have a favourable bias to the possibility of reconciling Marxism and feminism, we hate not yet pushed. We have not yet pushed our research far enough to fully substantiate this claim. And if you look at the role of domestic labour, many feminists have accused Marxism of being both sex-blind and sexist. We would like to give a few examples to back up this charge. Bataille Weinbaum uh, examines Marx's capital in light of its omissions concerning the division of labour by sex and age. She feels that this is the patriarchal component of Marxism. First, in discussing how to determine the value of labour power, Marx continually refers to the average labourer a concept <clears throat> pardon me, which is interchangeable with that of the average male adult. And although he admits that the employment of these different sorts of labour power, that of men and women, children and adults, uh, makes a great difference in the cost of maintaining the family of the labourer and in the value of the labour power of the adult male, he continues by saying, this factor, however, is excluded from the following investigation. If men, women and children are paid unequal wages, then there is no average labourer. What have we gained by saying that the average labourer earns $5 an hour, when the man earns $9, the woman earns $4 and an adolescent earns $2? We have only obscured the differences so that we cannot see how the capitalist system benefits from them. Later in the same volume, Marx explains, how, Marx explains how the individual worker exchanges his wages against the means of subsistence and that he supplies himself with the necessaries in order to maintain his labour power. What Marx doesn't indicate is that one of the things which the male worker needs to maintain his labour power is a wife. In fact, the whole question of domestic labour and its relationship to the economy is absent from Marx's analysis but women's unpaid individual domestic labour is obviously essential in the reproduction of male labour power. What is perhaps not as obvious is how it also, it's also important for capitalist profits. Many feminists have been examining the economics of women's domestic labour, and one particularly in interesting analysis tries to demonstrate how the existence of domestic labour lowers the value of labour power by lowering the costs of reproduction to the capitalists. So we're talking about production and reproduction, and women are assigned the reproduction, uh, and uh, and it's a matter of, of doing an analysis of the relationship between those two. Thus, although domestic labour is not part of the value of labour power, its existence means an increase in the ratio of surplus to necessary labour. So free housework means capitalists can pay lower wages and in difficult economic conditions, wages even fall below the amount necessary to reproduce workers' labour power, since housewives can use more of their own labour power and less money to feed, clothe and clean their family. For example, they can repair and transfer form old clothes rather than buy new ones and make all their meals from scratch rather than buying prepared fuels or ordering you know, McDonald's or Kentucky Fried Chicken or whatever. Uh, and I must must say in my young days, I do remember uh, my grandmother, for instance, uh, fixing up old clothes rather than uh, uh, buying new ones. And this is back in the 40s and 50s. And of course, after after the war in Australia, there was a fair bit of uh, there was a fair lack of money around for for people. Uh, well, next, we'll go into the, oh, I, I don't know whether I'll keep going now. It's 10:30. 
It's uh, a big topic. It's a big topic. It's a big topic. And uh, it's going to go on and on, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, well, well, because I think it needs well, to be covered. Oh, that's a good, it's a great and, topic. Uh, and when it does get interesting too when I get into the differences between Marxist feminists and radical feminists. But oh, I look forward uh, to I'm hoping it's illuminating for people. Actually, I just thought I'd end with the slogan: "We can't have socialism without women's liberation." Yes. We can't have women's liberation without socialism. Same thing for the environment too. Yes. You need both.